beloved disciples in our Lord Jesus Christ, it has been my privilege to have in my catechism classes all three of the young people who professed their faith this morning. Now my class teaching 11th and 12th grade, we study the, the Belgic Confession of Faith. And at the end of one year, we study the Canons of Dort. But my kids can tell you that I also require them to memorize parts of the Catechism. Providentially, the Catechism lesson that was scheduled for today is one of those sections that continually recur on their quizzes. So it seemed wise to me to move that to the morning text that we might consider one of those sections of the Catechism that I pound into my, my students. And you know why I make them memorize Lord's Day 23 time and time and time again? Do you know why I dwell upon that part of the catechism? Well, as I tell my students at the start of every year, we live in a world that is filled with uncertainty. We don't know what the future holds for any one of us. We don't know when tragedy might strike. We don't know when... The joy and the solid ground on which we seem to stand might suddenly seem to crumble. When those we trust might betray us. When we might be surrounded by danger. We don't know what the future holds at any given moment. And so we can't expect that we'll have time to prepare for that time of crisis, for that time of terror, for that time of grief. It might just suddenly fall upon us. And when it does, we need to know what ground we stand on. We need to know where our hope and our help and our lasting comfort are found. And Lord's Day 23 reminds us of the truths of the Bible that show us that foundation, that show us that solid ground on which we stand. We need to know that and we need to know it well. See, Lord's Day 23, it comes to us as a summary of sorts. Back in Lord's Day 7... We were asked, who is it that, <coughs> that has the joy of the comfort, the Christian comfort God has given? And we're told it's those who have faith in Jesus Christ. And then Lord's Day 7 explained what that faith looks like, what it involves. And then it asks the question, in what must we believe? In other words, what must be the content of our faith? And the answer is everything that God's Word teaches us, particularly as it is summarized for us in that creed of the church which is undoubted and true. That's the Apostles' Creed. And so from that point on, from Lord's Day 8 through Lord's Day 22, we have studied, really since May, we have studied what does the creed teach us? What is it that we confess when we confess, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, our Lord, etc. What do we mean by that? Why is that essential to our faith? And now that we've finished that study, the question comes up, what good is it? To what end have we confessed this? For what purpose have we believed this? What is the payoff to all of this? It's an important question for us to consider well, lest our confession of faith and our worship be empty. Just a, a meaningless tradition that doesn't really impact us. What is the purpose? What is the goal? What is the ultimate result 
of confessing the truth of the creed, which is the truth of the gospel. And Lord's Day 23 answers for us that the Christian finds comfort, true comfort, real comfort, lasting eternal comfort in his confession of the gospel. And that's our theme this morning. As we consider the glorious comfort God has given us in the gospel, we're going to examine the promise of the gospel, the essential nature of that gospel at its heart and soul, and then the way we as Christians receive that gospel. The Christian finds comfort in his confession of the gospel. And that comfort comes, first of all, in the gracious promise of the gospel. Now understand, in our natural sinful state, we don't even recognize that we need God's promises. We pretend that we're doing just fine. If there's problems in our lives, it's that other guy's problem. If they would just straighten up and fly right, our life would be great. If people would just listen to reason, my reason, you know, everything would be just fine. But on the whole, they think, you know, people are essentially good, especially me, you know. When, when people do bad things, we, we struggle to find reasons for it. You know, it must be something external. Maybe they had a traumatic event. Maybe they, they, there was some sort of a brain injury. Maybe there's something in their family life. But the default, says our world, says our society, the default is most people are good. And then they're shocked when someone hurts them or offends them or betrays them. Listen, the reality is that no one is inherently good except God. That's what Jesus said. God and God alone is the standard of what is good and commendable. He's the one who defines good and evil. He's the one who reveals that definition to us in His Word. God is the epitome of goodness. But people, because of the inherent depravity which we have had ever since Adam sinned. People are not good. We heard David confess just a couple minutes ago in Psalm 51, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. From the womb we have been sinful, every one of us. Jeremiah 17 verse 9 says, The very heart is deceptive. And from the heart flow all of the issues of life. David knew he was sinful from the start. It wasn't something he had to learn. It wasn't the result of extraordinary trauma. Sin arose naturally within him, and it does the same within each one of us. By nature, we are prone to hate God and man. From the start, we are contentious and selfish and bad. And so what we deserve is judgment. Listen again to David's plea, starting in verse 10 of Psalm 51. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me by your generous spirit. He's addressing there the needs of sinful man, the need for cleansing from defilement of sin, that we might be made holy. The need for restoration to God, from whom we've been estranged by our sin. The need for joy to replace our misery. The spirit to overcome our rebellion. And the thing is, we of ourselves can't obtain any of that. We're powerless to save ourselves. Powerless to give ourselves what we need. But the promise of the gospel changes that entirely. Article 59 of our catechism shows us the promise of the gospel has two aspects. First of all, in Christ I am right with God. That's speaking of justification. 
being made righteous in the sight of God, God finding in us no cause for judgment. God accepts those who are right with Him without any condemnation. He adopts us, takes us as His very children. This is the promise of John 1, verses 12 and 13. As many as received Jesus, to them He gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in His name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. That's the promise of the gospel. Jesus causes us to become right with God. And a second promise, in Christ I am heir to life everlasting. Understand that true life is having fellowship with God. True life is having peace with God. Ephesians 2 says that from the start we are dead. Even though our bodies live, we're dead because we're cut off from God. And only God can give us true life. We can't get it ourselves. We can't earn it ourselves. We can't do it. That's why David prays in Psalm 51, Do not cast me away from your presence. He's praying for life. For God to restore him to himself so that he might live truly. And folks, this is the gracious promise of the gospel. That we might be right with God. That we might be heirs, possessors, inheritors of life everlasting. Folks, that promise of the gospel, that is the most important message you can ever hear. You hear it regularly, but you must not dismiss it as something that is commonplace. Apart from Christ, apart from the gospel of Christ, you are inherently evil, guilty of sin, separated from God, dead and alone. And you can't fix it. You can't save yourself. You're helpless. However, God is able and He's willing. But in order to receive what God offers, you desperately need Christ. There is no forgiveness apart from Christ. There is no restoration apart from Christ. There is no hope of life at all apart from the Savior Jesus Christ. You must have what God alone can give you and He offers it freely through the gospel of Christ. And what does the gospel at heart declare? That's the message of Question and answer 60 from Lord's Day 23. And it's the message that stands at the heart of the Bible. It's the message of glorious substitution. And that's our second point. The question that's asked at this point in our catechism is simple but also profound. How are you right with God? Man, that's the question we all need to ask. Young people, you need to wrestle with that. How am I right with God. If I was to die at this very moment and stand before the throne of God and he says, why should I let you into my holy presence? Why should I allow you who have committed all these sins, who have lived among a people of unclean lips and are yourself a person of unclean lips, you whose heart was born deceitful, why should I let you into my presence? How are you right with God? We need to have an answer for that. The natural man in his sin says, well, because I'm pretty good. I mean, look at all these people around me. I'm better than they are. You know, I don't beat my wife. I don't cheat on my taxes. I, don't, I generally do my work at work. 
I try to keep the swears and swearing to a minimum. I don't waste a lot of time. I guess I'm pretty good. But that's the works of the law. Whether you're trying to obey the commands that you find in God's Word or the commands that you find in your conscience or, or simply what society has determined is right and good, following the commands of the law can't save you. The commands of the law we heard in Romans 10. The person who does these things shall live by them. And God's standard of doing these things is perfection. You can't fall short even at one point. Or you have broken the law and you have destroyed your possibility of earning your salvation. And you know what? We all did that before we even learned to walk or talk. We all do that every morning before we brush our teeth. We are powerless to attain rightness with our God by our doing. David's confession must be ours. I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. That must be our confession. Look at how our catechism expresses it, how comprehensively. My conscience accuses me of having grievously sinned against all God's commandments and of never having kept any of them. And I am still inclined toward all evil. That's true of every one of us. We have done what God forbade. We have not done what God commanded. We've sinned in our deeds, in our words, in our desires. Of ourselves, we're hopeless. Becoming right with God can happen only by what He does. He must act and we must gratefully receive. And graciously, our God offers to do exactly that. That's why He sent His Son. That's why His Son was willing to come. God desires to provide precisely what we need, and that involves three things, as our catechism help, helpfully points out. It involves satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness. We need Christ's satisfaction. That is payment for the debt created by our sin. David prayed, according to the multitude of your tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Later he says, hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. You see, we need our sins to disappear. But because God is just, our sins can't disappear unless someone pays for them, unless someone receives what is justly due for the committing of those sins. That's why Jesus came. That's why he suffered and died, to pay our debt in full, to serve the sentence our rebellion earned. And because he did, because he did, Colossians 1 verse 21 can declare, you who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, he has reconciled in the body of flesh through death, that is through Christ's death. Jesus fully satisfied, he fully paid for our sin. We need satisfaction, we need righteousness. Righteousness is the judgment of the law that we are perfect. Now, of course, we're not. We just talked about that, right? We fall short at every point. Therefore, God regards us according to the righteousness of Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. All things have become new for us. Because he made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. 
Jesus took up the cost of our sin and he gives to us the record of his perfect righteousness. So he gives us satisfaction, righteousness, but also holiness, being without defilement in the sight of God. Again, from Colossians 1, verse 22, it says, Jesus reconciled us to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. Because of Christ, God finds in us nothing that is displeasing to him. So these three, satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness, these three are what we need in order to be made right with God and heirs to life everlasting. And Jesus came to provide all three as our substitute. Notice how our catechism puts this. God grants and credits to me the perfect salvation or satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ. In other words, the satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness that we need belongs to Christ. And he credits it to us as though it was ours. That's called imputation. We heard in 2 Corinthians 5, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. That doesn't mean that Jesus himself was guilty of sin. He took our guilt. That's why he died, for our sins. And he was righteous so we could become a new creation. He was holy so we could be holy in the sight of God. He imputes that to us. We haven't actually become righteous, but the righteousness of Christ is counted as ours. It's an act of substitution. At every point in his life, Jesus knew he was living, he was acting, he was doing for us. He wasn't robbed of what he did. He came with the intention of living the life we needed to live, of dying the death that we deserved to die so that it could all be imputed to us. Folks, this is the perfect answer to the prayer we pray in Psalm 51. We pray, according to the multitude of your tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. And he answers by imputing to us the satisfaction of Christ, by punishing our sins in Christ on the cross. We pray. Cleanse or create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. And he responds by imputing to us the righteousness of Jesus so that looking on us, he sees one who has done everything necessary, everything commanded. We pray, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. And he responds by imputing to us the holiness of Christ so that looking on us, he sees no spot or stain of sin. Folks, this is what we need. Do not believe the lies of a sin-filled world because they always get wrong what they think we need. They think in order to be happy, in order to be joyful, in order to have fullness of life, we need money or we need reputation or we need to follow the lusts of the flesh or we need to follow the expectations of the world or we need to follow our heart. They're wrong. None of that will fulfill you. All of that ultimately will leave you empty. What we need, what we all need, is what we can't give ourselves. Only God can give us what we need. He gives us the satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness we need through the glorious substitution of Christ. And we receive it Well, we receive it by faith. And that's the last thing we need to see. The, I, I 
have a misprint that I put in the bulletin here. Through the grateful reception, the grateful reception of the gospel that is faith. What exactly is faith? How do we define it? Our catechism lesson gives a really great brief answer. All I need to do is accept the gift of God with a believing heart. That statement involves the three essential elements of faith. Knowledge, belief, and conviction or trust. Knowledge. We need to know what the gospel says, what it is, what it does. Because unless we know, we can't receive it, right? We need to know what we need and what Jesus did to meet that need. And we need to believe that that's true. That it's not a fairy tale. It's not a wives tale. It's not the imagination of men. No, this is what really truly happened. And then we need to trust that. To trust that Jesus not only did all of this, but he did it for me personally. And that it's sufficient to save me personally. Knowledge, belief, trust. That's what faith is. And if we have that faith, then we have been joined to Christ and we are saved. That's, that's the emphatic message we heard in our assurance of pardon from Romans 10. God calls us to confess the Lord Jesus with our mouths, acknowledging what we know about the gospel and about Jesus. Expressing our belief that it's true. And we need to believe in the heart. We need to trust that not only is it true, but it's true for me. He did it for me. And if you do, if you believe in the heart and confess with the mouth the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. That's God's promise to everyone who puts their faith in Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter who you are. What's your background, your race, your, your nationality? It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what you've done, the sins you've committed and those you've cherished in your heart, the things you've not done, and the people you've left hanging. It doesn't matter. Romans 10 verse 11 covers it all. Whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. See, faith is the only thing that enables us to possess what God has promised. Not what we do. What did David say in Psalm 51? You do not desire sacrifice or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. These, O oh God, you will not despise. He doesn't want us to bring a bunch of gifts and offerings and money and stuff. No. Insofar as we do that, we do that as our sign of thanks. And we should do that. We should show our thanks. Our faith should be a grateful faith that leads us to love and serve God with all that we are and all that we have. But the only thing that can receive what Jesus has done is that trust, that open hand. Faith is ultimately a conduit. Kids, you know what a conduit is? It's something that's used to get, to get something from its point of origin to its destination, from its start to its end. So electricians use uh, metal or plastic pipe as conduit to get wires from the power source to the device that it runs, maybe a light or a motor. Farmers use field tile, it's like big plastic pipes, as a conduit to get extra water out of their fields. And faith is a conduit to get the satisfaction and righteousness and holiness of Christ to us who believe. 
It's by means of faith and by faith alone that we are right with God and heir to life everlasting. We know that without any doubt because that is what God has told us in his word. There is no distinction. The same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. That, my friends, is God's promise and his promise is absolute. In Him we can rest, on His Word we can trust, and nothing can take away the truth of His salvation. Christians find comfort in their confession of the gospel. May God grant that comfort to every one of us. May that be the defining reality of our lives, of our being, of our identity. And may he strengthen our faith day by day as we look to Christ our Savior alone. Amen. Let us pray. O Lord, our God, you are so amazingly faithful to us. Father, we pray that you would strengthen us in the faith that joins us to Christ. That you would enable us to tell others about what Jesus has done. And that you would cause us to delight in you and in the work that you have done, giving you glory with our worship, with our confession, with our very lives. Father, we ask this in Jesus' name, confessing that all the glory belongs to you. Amen.